Hi everyone, my name is Melissa and every other week I'll be walking you through one crime from one country in Asia. Not only will we discuss the crime itself, we'll also show how it relates to historic Western relations with the region. This is our inaugural episode of 2018, and also our first with a live Patreon page. Thanks so much to Bradley Morris and True Crime Fan Club for their monthly pledges. All Patreon supporters will get access to bi-weekly bonus episodes that we'll be releasing starting next week. More on this at the end of the show. I'd like to apologize in advance if you can hear the wind howling uh, in the background as I speak. Unfortunately, I can't control Mother Nature quite yet, so just take this as uh, atmosphere. And of course, before we begin our story, I'd like to shout out our newest Apple Podcast reviews from Annie Rebecca, Indigo Chouette, and Esquire Me. The story in this episode is our first from West Asia. There was a lot of intercountry cooperation and intrigue involved, but our tale begins and ends in Pakistan. Balochistan is one of four provinces that make up Pakistan, occupying the southwest portion of the country. It's the largest province of the four, bordering Afghanistan in the north and Iran in the west. Because of its size and diversity, we can't generalize the living situation of anyone there. As a very surface example, some people in the province experience colder, drier climates year-long, while some people live in areas where temperatures in the summer can reach 50 degrees Celsius. That's 122 degrees Fahrenheit. And depending on your health, you could actually drop dead when it's that hot. Balochistan is, unfortunately, an underdeveloped area. It does have a large amount of natural resources, ones that the government of Pakistan utilize, but there hasn't been a lot of return for the actual people who call the province home. As of 2016, 71% of the citizens there are living in poverty. And in 2000, Balochistan was the backdrop for one of the strangest archaeological discoveries and one of the strangest black market trades of all time. In October of that year, 2000, Pakistani police received a tip that a man in Karachi was sending round a video advertisement starring him in the 2,600-year-old mummy that he was trying to sell. This man was Ali Akbar. Police arrived at his door as fast as they could, where Akbar informed them that the body was in the custody of Sardar Wali Riki in Keta, a bustling city near the Afghanistan border. Keta, for reference, is the provincial capital of Balochistan, and arguably has the nicest weather. Anyways, Sardar Wali Riki was a camel trader and the chief of the local Riki tribe. He planned to make a huge profit from the sale of the mummy. The artifact had already received an offer of a few million US dollars, an unbelievable amount for most people, but especially for those who live in an area with a 71% poverty rate. According to him, an Iranian man named Sharif Shah Baki found the corpse in its stone coffin after a local earthquake. The police tried to find this Baki character, but there was no trace of him. That said, they had no problem at all charging Akbar and the Reiki chieftain with violating Pakistan's Antiquities Act. This act, essentially, prevented the sale or exchange of antiquities in Pakistan that the government's official director of archaeology didn't know about. The act is still in use to this day. 
The policeman's next move was to bring the mummy to the National Museum of Pakistan in Karachi, where it could be scrutinized by experts. According to Dr. Asma Ibrahim, the National Museum's curator, the police who found the body were jumping up and down when they delivered it to her. They said it was the event of the century. Now, why was it such a significant find? Well, most of us associate mummification with the ancient Egyptians. And in the year 2000, there had never been a mummy that was not Egyptian in origin. And this body was found in Pakistan. Remember, Pakistan and Egypt are nearly 4,000 kilometers apart, or 2,500 miles. If a mummified body was found in Pakistan, it meant one of these three things. One, the deceased was originally Egyptian, but his or her body had been moved. Two, embalmers had traveled from Egypt to Pakistan to mummify a body. Or three, mummification was not exclusively an Egyptian process. No matter what option, this would have required a rewriting of the history books. But while the archaeologists got to work, a controversy was brewing about who should have been able to keep the mummy. Karachi, where the museum is, is not in the province of Balakistan. Understandably, the people of the Balakistan province claimed that the police seizure had been illegal, and it should have been studied in their region. They said that this was denying them their cultural heritage. But the fight wasn't just between provinces. It was international. Iran insisted that if the mummy turned out to be Persian royalty, as archaeologists suspected, they would file a claim with Interpol to have the mummy returned to them. Iran, located between Egypt and Pakistan, had been the center of the Persian Empire. Even the Taliban in Afghanistan laid claim to the mummy due to the proximity of where it had allegedly been discovered, near the border. But no one could really say for certain who this mummy belonged to, or who its coffin belonged to, until the experts determined who the corpse had been. The body had its arms folded across the chest, which traditionally indicated royal birth. Atop its head was a gorgeous crown of cypress trees carved out of gold, a symbol for the town of Hamadan, where the Persian king Xerxes would hold stately functions. And yes, it's the same king Xerxes from the movie 300. On the mummy's chest, there was a gold plate with old Persian cuneiform script worked into it. And at the front of the coffin itself, was an intricate carving of the Zoroastrian deity Ahura Mazda. Everything indicated that this was Persian royalty. Now, it seemed like it could actually be the first recorded proof of Persians mummifying nobility. Up until then, the only suggestion of the ritual had been in the records of the Greek historian Herodotus. Unfortunately, most Persian royal tombs had been raided long ago, leaving very little for scholars to work with. At the museum, Dr. Abraham used a popular dictionary to translate the ancient cuneiform script on the plate. I know it sounds really odd that they would use a dictionary randomly for something this important, but she wasn't an expert in actually reading the cuneiform. But the words became clear very quickly. I am the daughter of the great King Xerxes. Mazarica protect me. I am Radugana. I am. This text suggested that one of King Xerxes' daughters, a Persian princess, was lying in that coffin. While Dr. Ibrahim sent copies of the cuneiform to an expert in the ancient language, the corpse was immediately sent to the local hospital for an x-ray and a CT scan. 
The x-ray proved that there was a body of a female inside, one four feet and seven inches tall, and based on the bones, the doctors determined that this woman was 21 years of age or older when she had died. There was also visible spinal damage. The CT scan was used to check that the organs of the body had been removed in accordance with Egyptian tradition. These results provided the first major red flag in the investigation, because every organ had been removed. If you know something about Egyptian burial rites, you studied in elementary school like I did, you'll know that the Egyptians were required to leave the heart inside the body. The heart is what the dead would use to think cognitively in the afterlife. The archaeologists approached an expert in Egyptian mummification, Bob Breyer, who could immediately tell it was a botched job, not just because of the heart, but also because of how the organs had been removed. The Egyptians would have used a hook through the nose to enter the brain and swirl the matter around until it dripped back out through the nose. Sorry, gruesome, I know. But whoever had worked on the Persian princess had jammed some kind of tool through the chin and up into the head in order to remove the brain. So was this a forgery or just some poorly trained embalmers? Well, the cuneiform expert verified that the script could not have been written 2,600 years ago because the name Radugana was actually a Greek transliteration of the original Persian name, Wardugana. This was obviously from a later period, as a Persian during Xerxes' time would not have used the Greek name. Then, Dr. Ibrahim took a closer look at the stone coffin, where she saw lead pencil tracings around the carvings. Someone had copied and stenciled existing Persian art, not just into the stone, but also into the gold crown. And they'd done an incredibly convincing job. Because a lead pencil was used, that brought the date of the mummy way up to the 1500s at the very earliest. Finally, doctors revisited that CT scan again, where they suddenly noticed a horrifying detail that would change everything. Tendons and ligaments that held together the bones in the corpse's ear. If this body was as old as it was alleged to be, which we already knew it wasn't, it would have been impossible for those tendons and ligaments to still be intact. Not only was this not an antiquarian body, it probably couldn't even have been older than 50 years. The National Museum requested an autopsy, which meant that the medical examiners had to saw through the dry resin coating. I've actually linked to video footage of this autopsy in the bibliography for the episode, and if you're not squeamish, I highly recommend you watch it. Now, what they found was the hollowed out body of an unknown woman. The fungus and the bandages she was wrapped inside underscored just how recently this woman had died. Her hair had been bleached blonde from the chemicals and used to preserve her. She was stuffed with table salt to dry her body out. Her neck and spinal column had been broken in a traumatic injury. The latter, the spinal column, probably from a violent blow and carbon dating of the bones determined that this woman had died in 1996, just four years ago. What had begun as an archaeologist's dream had ended in a full-blown murder investigation. 
The Egyptian mummification process generally took around 70 days, but the body had to start undergoing that process within 24 hours of death. Whoever had done this had gotten access to a woman's body on the very day she died, in 1996, mummifying it and then offering it for sale four years later. Now, in Muslim tradition, bodies are actually supposed to be buried within 24 hours. That's the ideal. If that was the case, the culprits may have just been opportunistic body snatchers. But if the victim had not been Muslim, if they'd been Christian, for example, then it seemed pretty unlikely that this crime had been done by chance. And would an operation this big really be left to chance? How could a team have been assembled so quickly? The intricate details of the coffin and mummification would have required several different experts, including a historian of some sort, a stone carver, a metal worker, someone who could remove the organs. This was a bona fide operation. A number of people would have had to know about it. The police reinterrogated Akbar and the Riki chieftain, but with no results. After all, their alleged source, Baki, had never even been found. A new lead was discovered when Oscar White Muscarella, an archaeologist at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, revealed that he'd received four Polaroid photographs of the same fake mummy before the police in Pakistan had discovered it. An Iranian man named Amanullah Rigi had sent the photos, then called and suggested a price for the body. Unfortunately, Muscarella knew it was a fake right off the bat because of one telling inaccuracy in the carving of the Zoroastrian god in the coffin. Rigi, upon questioning, seemed to be another innocent, well, innocent-ish middleman. But that's all the police had. A proper Muslim burial was finally demanded for the body of this unidentified woman. But it never seems to have happened. The last article I can find in the subject is from 2008, 10 years ago, where the mortuary holding her says that the police have not responded to requests to give the body up. The investigation is technically still open, and until it's closed, it's hard to say if they can actually bury her. As the National Museum staff would describe, this poor soul had gone from princess to object. The security arrangements are very comprehensive. We have detailed the DSP exclusively for the security of the mummy. There's a specific guard in uniform and there are plain clothesmen deployed. We are taking every precaution to ensure that no item from the mummy is pilfered. That was a clip from when the Persian princess was first discovered and treated like the priceless treasure people so badly wanted her to be. If she had actually been real, books would have had to be rewritten to accommodate her. There's no wonder that the forgers, potentially murderers, would have felt they could command any price. What they didn't expect was to have actual experts from world over investigating their work. And honestly, it was a work of art, what they created. The effort and detail put into the coffin and the mummification process is still unbelievable to me. In a later interview with Dr. Ibrahim, she explains, you supply when there is a demand. 
if no one was buying, no one would dig art out. The antiquarian black market today is a $6 billion industry. Not only do people create forgeries, they also steal from museums to sell to private collectors, they desecrate existing temples, or they start illegal excavations. Dr. Ibrahim adds that when it is explained to people involved in illicit excavations that they are selling off their valuable heritage, they say that hunger is a bigger problem for them. I mean, can't disagree with that. There will always be a market for art and antiques. But it's a lot easier to get your hands on these items in countries that are war-torn, experience abject poverty, and in these sad ways of the world, a lot of the war and instability in Western Asia, specifically the Middle East, continues to be due to Western interference. The destruction and robbery of cultural capital is a fascinating topic. First, I recommend going to Interpol's website for stolen art and just taking a look at the catalog of most wanted art. The four main countries that the stolen art comes from are Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. If you recognize any of the ones you see on the screen, well, call Interpol, but also give me credit. Some stolen goods are actually taken from their home countries by terrorist organizations like ISIS or the aforementioned Taliban. They do this to sell the items and use the proceeds to fund their terrorist activities. It's strange to think that the institutions which buy these items are likely based in countries that created the conditions for these groups to thrive in the first place. American listeners may remember an incident in 2017 when the Christian company Hobby Lobby had to pay a $3 million settlement for buying artifacts smuggled out of Iraq. There were a number of people on social media saying that Hobby Lobby was in effect funding ISIS. Now, I do not like Hobby Lobby by any means, but I will go on record as saying there is no proof that Hobby Lobby funded ISIS through their illegal purchase. However, since there's no proof that there's no proof, if you follow me, it just demonstrates how difficult it is to determine the provenance of physical cultural capital, of art. Who owned it? When did they own it? If they gave it to someone else, was it theirs to give? And why is this object determined to be of great importance over other ones? After all, just because something is old doesn't mean it is quote-unquote significant. Now, unlike the Taliban, ISIS does interestingly actually make use of theatrical destruction of artifacts to demonstrate control over the cities and towns they've taken over. Setting aside how horrifying it is for them to do this, in an abstract way, it's a fascinating example of the power that symbols wield in everyday life. Now, going back to the provenance of art, it's well worth noting that stolen items often end up in museums. There's a wonderful article in The Guardian that sums it up. How can Western universal museums acquire and display artifacts without stoking the illegal arts trade and reproducing colonialist narratives? I recommend reading the article all the way through. It's not very long, and again, it's available in the citations for this episode online. Are the people who created the art benefiting from the display of the art? Should the country that an artwork comes from, when the origin of it can't be discovered, be somehow compensated? For example, ancient Greek art brings in a multitude of tourists to the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Greece, the country, is not doing so hot. 
yeah, that's a bit vague of an example, but these are the kinds of questions that it's important to ask. Who is the art for? Who profits from it? You know, there have been some really amazing efforts at provoking discussion on how museums are presented to an audience. Again, in New York, the Decolonize This Space movement staged an anti-Columbus Day tour of the American Museum of Natural History, where guides took groups through the building, pointing out inaccuracies in the plaques, pointing out artifacts that had been labeled incorrectly, and even human remains. You do see bones in museums from time to time, but rarely do we stop and ask ourselves, did their descendants give permission for these body parts to be displayed? If only these tours were offered as an option at every prominent world museum. Well, I guess if the museum offered them, they couldn't really pretend they didn't know the art was illegal anymore. And if we were really, truly vigilant about historical artifacts, we might prevent another Persian mummy from happening. A real woman whose life's worth was ultimately determined by the market. New episodes of True Crime Asia will be released every other week, wherever you're subscribed. While the best part of podcasts is that they promote free information for all, it does, unfortunately, cost money to keep the show up on our Squarespace. But if just 18 of you pledged $1 a month on our Patreon, after 12 months, that would keep True Crime Asia hosted online for a whole year. Pledging also gets you access to bonus episodes, fortnightly newsletters about true crime in Asia, and even handwritten postcards from me once a month. I have some beautiful stationery dying to be mailed. Head to patreon.com slash truecrimeasia to support us. And find the bibliographies for each episode. True Crime Asia is created, produced, and researched by Melissa Powers. This episode was co-written with my friend Katya. The theme song is Lasha Kyopianka by George Frederick Handel, performed by Bert Elink. If you like what you hear, hit subscribe and please write a review. I will shout you out in the next episode. Join the conversation on our Facebook page and private discussion group. And finally, before we go, here's a trailer for one of my favorite true crime podcasts. It deals with an important topic that I think you'll love as well. This is The Missing Minority Project. What if your loved one went missing? What would you do to get them back? Police have been looking for Ivan Aguilar. He went missing in May 2014 at the age of... I wondering about a little girl who seemingly vanished from Milwaukee. Alexis Patterson. It's reported missing by his adoptive father. We started this podcast to help find the missing who aren't otherwise covered in the media. We call, we request information. We're still left with nothing, and we need your help to solve them. Somebody out there has to know something. Mommy, want you home? I want my baby. I miss her. I miss her. Join us for our true crime podcast that covers the disappearances of missing minorities and LGBTQ persons. These cases are solvable. Someone just needs to listen. This is the Missing Minority Project podcast.